Okay. Hello and welcome to Fans Labyrinth. Podcast where, yeah, oh god. I wasn't, I literally, I wasn't even gonna laugh at that. Like, it didn't even register until you just weirdly paused. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Fans Labyrinth. Where are we talking? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna make up the line. Yeah, that's the point. Your favorite. I know, but we, we say a, a pretty similar line every time. And last time I said favorite twice, which was embarrassing. <laughs> that, that was so. pretty bad. <laughs> I forgot so. about that. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I pointed it out, too. Oh, God. Oh, I noticed. Why, why do you still do this podcast with me? Oh, my God. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. And I should warn you that one of us always tells the truth and one of us always lies. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we talk about your favorite indie movies and genre television. My name's Joseph, and I'm here with my co-host... Lydia! Hey, how are you? Howdy. Um, What's good in the hood? What an eventful last, like, month, <laughs> let's say, um, since yeah. we've recorded. It's been a while. It's been... Insanity in the real world. But I think Nickelback. for the most part, what we've been talking about though is we're just we feel so lonely and isolated because of the pandemic. Yeah. It's really hitting us at this point. Look, I mean, okay. Yes, for you as well, but you have roommate. No, I, I live alone. I'm a man on an island. Except I'm a woman, but I'm on an island. I was about to say, I'm like, do we have to, <laughs> do we have to change pronouns? Or? No, I'm, I'm a woman on an island and there are no bridges or boats. I know. I feel like. It's sad. You know, Gil- Gilligan's Island when the professor makes the little like coconut radio. That's what this moment feels like to me. I t- can tell you, I haven't seen that show from the sixties <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> There's gonna be there's gonna be like either one millennial who listens to this who's like yeah I also watched Gilligan's Island reruns oh on Peachtree yeah. TV when I was thirteen, or there's gonna yeah. be like oh one fifty year old that for some reason listens to us which like hey what's up? I I like that we yeah I like that we have we're both saying that we have a bunch of media to talk about and we're like yeah let's stir right into Gilligan's Island yeah. <laughs> Even though I have, I literally haven't watched that since it was on reruns on actual cable television. I don't generally watch Gilligan's Island, but I bet, I bet that that's going to be some fucking modern reboot any day now. There's going to be like some hmm. fucking Gilligan's Island reboot sitcom. We've rebooted everything else. What's left? True. Got like Gilligan's Island. We've already done Melrose Place. Like, I don't, there's been two 90210 reboots. Speaking of reboots, let me go in with the segue. Oh, Should okay. we just start right off with uh, talking about this? We've, we've been wanting to talk about this for a while, but Sabrina, we both finally finished it. The show is fully complete. Yep. It's come full circle, and uh, that circle is pretty shitty. Okay. Um, I, I'll just state right from the get-go, my basic position on Sabrina is I really enjoyed the first season. I thought mm-hmm. it was a really cool, self-contained um, thing. The atmosphere, the characters, and I think they've held on to the characters 
the whole way through. They've always felt fun, and I like them. For the most part. That's just my feeling towards them. But they just had no idea what to do with the plots. Like, they're just like, we have to make up a plot each season. And there's some cool ideas in certain episodes, but the overall arc is so... You know, it's like we've talked about Supernatural for the last billion episodes. It just, it falls apart. It Okay, so Supernatural falls apart, but I feel like it falls apart in, like, a very different way. There's still a certain amount of, like, cohesion in each season where, like, yes, they're constantly, like, amping up and getting more and more over the top. But the season and, like, the problem that occurs in that season, whatever the big bad is, is cohesive throughout the entire thing. It never loses the thread. The thing with Sabrina is, I find it's more similar to, like, late-stage Ryan Murphy shows, where they start out great. And then Mm -hmm. he just keeps introducing more and more shit that's, like, really cool in the immediate moment, but it fucking goes nowhere. It never really gets tied up, and you're just like, yeah, that was conceptually neat, but I don't understand, like, what the fuck happened to it? Like, yeah, there's in um, Asylum, you've got Nazi Doctor, you've got Aliens, you've got Chloe Savini is deformed and crawling away, you've got... You know, like, lesbians are being locked up in asylums for being lesbians. And none of these threads are really ever tied together in the end. And you're just left right. to be like, all of these pieces were cool, but they add up to fucking nothing. And Sabrina, especially the last two seasons, feels very similar to me where the ideas are there, but you've stuffed so much shit in that you didn't give yourself enough time to actually wrap any of these bits up. Yeah, I think the third season in particular is really bad. Mm. I think the introduction of Caliban is so so messy and like stupid. And they actually reference it in the fourth season how they're like, who the like they're in a way like, who the fuck are you? Like, what yeah. is this? What's what's second Sabrina is a mess we have to deal with now, and it's just like, it's a lot. Um, I think we're just gonna have to presume that you're ready for spoilers at this point in the conversation yeah, for the third and fourth seasons, but. I'm just going to dive right into what I think is the most salient point, which is the very end. And then we can talk about other parts of the season, maybe. What did you think of the, like, the very ending of Sabrina? I mean, look, okay. How, okay, are we going full-blown spoiler? Like, we're going deep? Yeah. Okay, I, I'm i fine with Sabrina dying. I'm fine with both Sabrinas dying. Like, it's either they've got to get melded back together, or they need to die for the show to end in any kind of cohesion and i'm fine with that Mm -hmm. but the way they made her die was so dumb it's like she didn't there there was no reason for her to actually die in that moment like they they could have literally done anything it's so unsatisfying it's so unsatisfying it yeah it, it is the climactic end blah 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 but it's so like it just doesn't feel like a lesson was learned it doesn't feel like it's part of her arc in any real way mm-hmm. it's just like this isn't it beautiful to have her die and everyone be sad about it or something and i think that romanticization of death is super compounded when nick comes in <laughs> to yeah. save the fucking ending or whatever and i'm like this is the worst fucking message you could have possibly given well, for and not only that, the like, ending you basically have sabrina Dying twice in this self-sacrificial way in the last two or three episodes or whatever. Because you have Morningstar dying, basically sacrificing herself to warn them. 
And I have a whole other problem with that. And then you have Spellman dying to, like, end it all. So you just have both Sabrinas dying in this hyper-sacrificial act that is unsatisfying twice. It's just doubly unsatisfying and unnecessary. She jumps through a portal and she's just, like, dead? Why? There was no reason for her to die because of that. She All she did, she was totally fine. There was no damage to her. She wasn't hurt mm-hmm. in any way. And she jumps through a mirror portal and she just, she's dead. Why? What killed yeah, her? Yeah, it was confusing to me, but I thought it was, wasn't it that she was in the void realm, opened Pandora's box, and then they, they she was frozen in there or something because she was like the last thing. and But they pulled her soul out or something like this. No, that was Spellman. Oh, that was Spellman. That was Spellman after Morningstar died because they put Spellman's right. soul in Morningstar's Into body. Body, right? So yeah, I don't know how Morningstar died. Really, she just jumped through not. a fucking mirror and that killed her. And I'm like, I thought you were the queen yeah. of hell. Shouldn't you have some base level like healing ability? Yeah. To keep on the hate train for now, but I do have some good things to say. But one of the worst parts for me was Caliban just grabbing the fucking what do you call it? not MacGyver. But you know, when, when we call the item that's like the the box or the tesseract or whatever of any movie, like the super mm-hmm. important item, do you know what the, that's called? Uh, th- there's a word for it in like film things. It's like the MacGuffin, the MacGuffin. So okay. they like, they random, you never heard this term? No. I feel like they talked about it on um, some of the podcasts we listen to. But anyways, you know, so the, the important item. And, and so they just mentioned that there is... The way to kill immortal beings, which everything that they have to deal with now is immortal beings, mm-hmm. is with the the spear of Nazareth, which is the spear that used to kill Jesus. And the Caliban just literally grabs it. He's just like, yeah, it's over here. It's just which, like, like, I just, like, I just this want is to gonna point be out the thing. in like, you know, like Christian Catholic mythology, like the spear didn't help Jesus, but it didn't kill, like he didn't die. He didn't die immediately after being stabbed with a spear. He lived for, like, a while being crucified on that fucking cross. Like, if anything, the actual cross killed him. Yeah, I mean, you know, this and Supernatural, right? They just love finding any item. Like, you you have to pick things that have something, the most holiest of whatever items. um, Or unholy. But yeah, so... I thought that was the stupidest, like, DSX Machina item ever introduced. Like, it was so ridiculous. It was, and, it was introduced, and like, it was three, so important. three or four episodes from the end. <laughs> yeah, and it's so important. It's used, like, three times, and it's, like, massively... Wait, who's it uh, used on? I mean, I know... Lucifer. I, Lucifer, yeah, I remember that. And then Lilith was going to use it on herself, but she doesn't. Yeah, and then I thought they uh, used it on one of the Void people, too. Maybe I don't know. I don't even. I don't even know what happened to the endless. Like they like the stuffed talking Salem cat and Sabrina Morningstar come through this portal, and both of like well, she dies. You see her die, but you have no idea what happens to the endless. Like it's still an eldritch terror. No one traps it, and you don't know if it's dead. I don't even know if it can die. It's the endless. It's not like it's like a corporeal being. I did like. A few things though the reintroduction of or the 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 metagaming of the endless was really cool the where they bring them to the plot of the old sabrina and and they basically put into text a bunch of like 
comments that they've gotten on the show itself about like yeah. which characters like Sabrina's always supposed to be with Harvey. We're always supposed to reset where people are, right? And so Nick was, you know, in a way, he's Harvey. He's just the person that Sabrina's supposed to be with. And then she's like very conflicted about this yeah. feeling towards them. And so I do think it's appropriate that she ends up with Nick in the end, but I hate the way that it was done. I I think it's really uh, gross. I also loved the whole story of the church switching over to Hecate from Lucifer. I think that's a really beautiful storyline. I wish they'd done more with that. You know what I mean? Like, there are concepts that were brought in that were really cool, where you have these moments of, like, really, like, deep female empowerment, like, the whole Hecate thing and the, the, like, very Wiccan-type vibes. And then they're just, like, they just, like, glaze over it. And you're like, here... We got a new statue. Baphomet's gone. Really, the only real reason that they actually put that into the into the show is solely, I think, because the um, Church of Satan was suing them for ripping off their Baphomet statue design. <laughs> so they had to get rid of the Baphomet statue, and they needed a vehicle to make that happen. Yeah, I do think the whole episode with the rock concert thing was really ham- like ham-fisted jammed in there. Um, there's something about it that's charming, but it's, I'm like, it is a ripoff. It is a ripoff of a Sabrina the Teenage Witch episode. Okay, I didn't know. Um, that. It's they obviously they don't like battle a band from hell, but there's a battle of the bands episode in Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and she uses magic so that her band can win the battle of the bands, mm. and they play like. They don't play, like, a hair metal song, but they do play, like, a retro song. That episode came out in, like, the 90s. So they play, like, a retro song from, like, probably the 60s or 70s. And, like, aesthetically, their vibe and outfits are very similar, just dated to the 90s. So it's a lot of, like, pastel colors and feather boas and, like, butterfly clips. But it still, like, Mm -hmm. has the same vibe that Sabrina's outfit does. My big problem with it is actually just an emotional beat where... The Harvey and Ross and all their their band gets up and they lose and I'm just like, I know so dumb and then Sabrina just comes in Wednesday I'm like this was the one plot that isn't yours to take yeah. like this is their one thing it's I was like that, that, I know they had the band the whole time I was just like that's just nasty that was so yeah there's a lot of emotional arcs I feel by the end of the show that were yeah badly badly and like, ended look. I like Sweet Child of Mine as much as the next person. Rocky Horror, like Time Warp, first of all, was way better than the other two songs, which is what Harvey and and Roz's band played. Mm -hmm. But also, it was supposed to be like a punk rock battle of the bands, and neither Harvey's band nor Sabrina's played rock music really at all. Like Sweet Child of Mine is, is kind of rock adjacent, but it's certainly not like punk or, like, mm-hmm. anything like that. And Time Warp, I love it to pieces, <laughs> is not a punk song. So I'm like, I don't understand what the aesthetic of this Battle of the Bands was supposed to be. It's supposed to be, like, a rock and roll Battle of the Bands. Yeah. And you won with, like, a weird 80s ballad. Which, again, love Sweet Child of Mine, but con. Yeah. I, the, the show in the end, I think took a lot of missteps and I think I still just enjoyed the characters and wanted to see like see it finish but yeah it it was not good I 
honestly, I gotta be honest, like, I really like Kiernan Shipka. I like her a lot as an actress. Mm-hmm. I grew to hate Sabrina as a character so much. She was so aggravating and, like, entitled and self-important. And I was like... Yes. I get it. She's this 16-year-old with, like, all this power and she keeps being told she's super important. But, like, the minute that she's not chosen for something, she turns into this, like, whiny, jealous, self-righteous little, like... I don't know. I hated her. I just found her so frustrating. And then every plot gets turned around to focus solely on her. And it's like, I get it's the Sabrina show, but you don't have to be the center of attention in every single scene to the point where we have to split your character into two fucking people just (laughs) so you can get more screen time. Yeah. Did you want to talk about anything else next or? Um, well, I mean, I have watched other things. And some of it we've watched together, and some of it we're both watching but haven't finished. So I'm like, I don't know what to bring up. Okay, I, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll jump into one that I, let's, a positive note. Uh, right when I moved, I moved into a new place, and that's been a really cool journey. <laughs> it's a good journey for me. Um, no. Yeah, was, okay. That was a lot. Okay. Um, so I started, Love that my friends. Love there, there we go, that's the line. Uh, I got this show recommended to me called Alice in Borderland, which Netflix was already recommending to me. And it was like always at my front page, like always like, you should watch this. And, but it's a live action Japanese show, which a lot of live action Japanese stuff I've found myself really disappointed with. Um, so I was hesitant, even though I liked the concept a lot, but I, my friend said, no, we watched it through. It was really good. So I was like, okay, like, I'm going to go for this. And yeah, it is such a fun romp. And so it's about uh, three guys in Japan, in Tokyo, who are sort of running around and they're hiding in a bathroom for reasons. And the, the lights flash and everyone in Tokyo is gone and they don't know what happened. They are sort of given a path or lit the way to this building in which they meet a bunch of other people and there's some cell phones on a table. They each pick up a cell phone and it says basically, you're red, you know, hello, so-and-so, you're registered in this game. And they go into this building and a game unfolds. They beat this game. This is like the first episode. And afterwards they're given, they find a playing card. And uh, the playing card I think is a three of clubs or spades. I think it was clubs. And they find out that that means that they have a three-day visa. And they see someone else who says, someone else walking around the streets, who's like, my visa's up, this world is hell, like, good luck. And then they're shot by a laser beam from the sky. So if your visa ends, you're dead. And in the game, you notice that if you screwed up, you'd be shot by a laser and died too. So they they had a couple people in the room die. Um, so this is the premise of the thing, right? You're going to have to do these games over and over again. They're they're very tough. Many people die to earn yourself visas and try to survive for longer. But you don't. The big thing is like, yes, you'll earn visa, but it's like, what's the point? You know, it's like everyone's gone and you can only survive as long as you keep winning. And you can only keep winning for so long, presumably, because they're hard. And essentially what you learn, this is like every trope that I love for this type of like romp. Um, is that like the different suits means different types of games. And just to like talk about one, it's like 
in the second game, they meet a guy who's played one of each suit and he explains what he thinks the suits are. And he says like, if you do get a hearts though, that's where you're really screwed because hearts games, unlike the other three, which are about smarts, physicality or a team building or like team uh, exercise, hearts are about betrayal. The only way to win is to play with people's hearts. And so of course the very next game is a hearts game and my, that's when the show like really got me. I was like, oh God, like the level um, that the show is going and the, the Game of Thronesy type feel of, you know, who who can survive and who can go on and their, their storylines and journeys. It's so, it just, it really worked for me. The ending, um, so it's part of a long running manga and so the ending really showed that the show is going to keep going on too, which I'm excited about to see further seasons. But, you know, it's not good in a, the characters, blah, blah, blah. It's not going to be like, you know, something to write home about. But for something to just binge and get excited about, I loved it. It was such a good time. Cool. Um, yeah, I... I, uh, I watched, um, I, I won't go into them right away, but I did, I did watch a couple, uh, movies I wanted to get around to, too, that I think those are more short, but there's just cool little things I want to say about them. But yeah. Um. Do you want to talk about Bones, maybe? Yeah, I guess I'll talk about Bones. Ugh. Yeah, Back through my nostalgia trip of television, because I finished Supernatural, um, and all this, like, all of this shit is on Prime. Like, every show that you watched in the mid-2000s when you were, like, early yeah. 2000s when you were in high school, um, is on Amazon Prime, at least in Canada. So I've been doing a rewatch of Bones, which is the show with, uh, Emily Deschanel and David Boreanaz. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's based on the Kathy Reichs novels. Kathy Reichs is a novelist and a forensic anthropologist, the character in the show Bones is both a novelist and a forensic anthropologist. So she's basically just Kathy Reichs. Oh, she actually writes books in it too? I didn't know that, Yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah, she's a best-selling mystery novelist. And she's writing literally the books that Kathy Reichs writes about huh. her character. Like, it's it's very, That's like, not something the same I person. knew about the show. Yeah. So she is... She works at the Jeffersonian Institute... And uh, she is partnered, her and her team are partnered with an FBI agent um, in D.C. And they solve murders using bones and other things. It's, I mean, it's fine. It's, it's you know, just as good as pretty much any one of those other, like, procedural crime dramas. Um, it's got its own, like, kitschy thing, like every single one of them has. Um, I... <sighs> It's hard for it's it's a weird show. It has a weird place for me because of the time period it came out in and when it ended. There's mm-hmm. some really cool progressive things about it. Um like there's a lot of Oh right, you were mentioning this. Yes. Yeah, so there was a lot of female representation. You know, the head of the Jeffersonian Institute for the Forensics Department is um in the first season was a uh, black man and from the second season on was a black woman, which is awesome. Temperance Brennan is a woman, and they're, like, like artist, facial reconstruction, computer person is a woman, is an mm-hmm. um, Asian-American woman. So it's, like, there's some really interesting representation there. But then, and, and it falls into the same trap that almost every, like, crime procedural of that time period falls into, where there's, like, some really weird 
bigotry that's like just inherent throughout it where you're like i'm not sure i feel like you're trying to address these systemic problems that exist in america but they're doing it in such a clumsy way that it just comes off like fucking racist so it's like super uncomfortable like at, at one point one of the interns that they bring in is an iranian man iranian american man and when he first comes in he has like an Arabic accent. He says it's Iranian. You later find out that, that Temperance Brennan could tell it sounded more regionally uh, Jordanian. Um, okay. But it turns out that he was faking the accent the entire time because he's a devout Muslim and he's also a forensic scientist. And when people find out that he's both a scientist and a devout Muslim, they question him a ton. But he also mm-hmm. gets a ton of questions about his Muslim faith because of racist reasons. So when he has an American accent, he gets more questions about him being a terrorist than when he just puts on the fake Iranian accent. And he says that, and one character in the show is literally because, like, just, I swear to God, word for word says, yeah, because they assume you're a terrorist, so they're scared of you. And I'm like, mm. wow. Okay, we're addressing this. But then he makes, like, really racist comments where it's, like, super weird. Like, he assumes that this guy, Arastu, is a terrorist for the first, like, six or seven episodes that he's in, even though Arastu is nothing but kind and professional and, like, very polite. He, he like, questions him. He's like, you know, do you hate the government? What's your opinion on 9-11? And I'm like, this is disquieting yikes um and there's another episode where they bring in um a japanese forensic scientist forensic anthropologist because the case that they're working on revolves around a japanese national and this forensic scientist i mean and i think this was before you know lgbtq terminology and experiences uh were a lot more prevalent in in pop culture um, but this okay. character is very clearly non-binary um, or gender fluid because they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're very, like, androgynous. Um, they they wear, like, non-gendered clothing. They have a non-gendered hairstyle. They don't specify their pronouns in any significant way. Um, and even when the other Japanese character is referring to them, it's, it's they, them. They never use, like, uh, male or female pronouns. But the rest of the characters in the show, all of the main characters, have a betting pool on whether or not this Japanese anthropologist is a man or a woman. And they keep having conversations calling them he, she. Oh my he, god, yeah, she. I can see it. I can see it. Yeah, just being like he, she, refusing to acknowledge that there could be like anything other than male or female like making it very uncomfortably about their genitals to the point where at the very end of the episode, one of the characters, Angela, says goodbye to this perfectly polite, very professional forensic anthropologist just so she has an excuse to hug this person so she can feel whether or not they have breasts. Yeah. Oh, God. That's so fucked up. makes a comment about how they are a woman because she could feel their breasts to the other characters. Oh, God. And I'm like, what the fuck? 
Yeah, if there's one thing we could say that we didn't maybe mention about Sabrina in general is actually Sabrina, even compared to Riverdale, is a nice attempt at a progressive show. It really tries to bring in characters of a lot of diversities. It's clumsy, but I, you can definitely feel the difference when you compare it to something like Bones, where mm-hmm. I just don't see Sabrina making a mistake like this. Well, like, no, it's, I... Sabrina's is more clumsy, but it's part of the new generation. Yes, 100%. And I hate to be that product of the times thing, because Bones is 10 years old. Like, it's not a significant age no, gap yeah. as far as, as as. But these are cutting edge go. issues, so yeah. Yeah, and and like, I mean, it's just crazy to think about how we think about diversity and representation within a 10 year span that there really has right. been that much of a of a change in our collective thinking when it comes to pop culture representation is crazy to me because this is a show that i watched yep. when i was you know in high school and and after like this show was playing in in the 2010s right so it's it's just bizarre to think that these sort of clumsy missteps and like uncomfortable biases existed in something that was created when I was like a cognitive critical thinking age Mm -hmm. to go back and watch some of these shows and realize like, no, yeah, that's super racist. Like there are certain shows I can think back on like 24 where I'm like, no, like 24 was like a pretty blatantly racist show. If you really like, I never watched about it. Every season, it was, like, some type of person of color or people of color were responsible for the terrorist attack, and almost always were they of Arabic descent. Like, every season, it was a different Arabic Mm. country was committing a terrorist act against the United States. Every single season, including the one season where it was the Russians, and really, it was just the Russians funding the Arabic country. Like, every season. And it was all post-9-11 kind of, like, weird racist bias shit. So it's like, you, I can, I can picture the mindset it came out of. It's just fucked up to think about the fact that I was in, like, 9th, 10th, 11th grade when that shit was being created. And now I look at it and I'm like, that's awful. That's, like, disgusting that that was one of the most popular television shows in existence at the time. And it was just blatantly overtly bigoted right yeah i don't know that show so i i'm just gonna move on and just this should make me sad too <laughs> but yeah bone sounds it's it's a little bit tragic i did actually enjoy the dynamic in that show a bit but yeah it's it doesn't sound great i mean i gotta be honest it gets kind of annoying when they finally do get together it's like right. such a cop-out reason too like basically it's will they won't they will they won't they they keep dating other people like he confesses his love for her. She can't, like, she's like, I can't. I don't want to risk our partnership. He starts mm-hmm. dating somebody else. She confesses her love for him. He's like, I'm with somebody else. And then they break yeah. up. And then one of the interns gets shot and killed. So he he tells her to stay at his place, like, in, because they're being, like, targeted by a serial killer, by a sniper. And she's, like, sobbing, grief-stricken because of her intern was shot and died in her arms. And then they have sex and then she gets pregnant and then they're just like, they move in together. Yeah. And they're just together from that day forward. And I'm like, you had weird grief sex, accidentally got pregnant, and that's the only reason you two are together. That's it. <laughs> Yikes. Um, it's just, look, it's, 
It's weird to think about that happening because it, it happens in such a short period of time and it's literally immediately after this intern gets like shot in the heart and dies in front of them. And that's the only reason they slept right. together was because she's like grief stricken. I'm like, that's kind of fucked up like a little bit. Um, I did a rewatch of Ginger Snaps, the movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I rewatched that yesterday. Did which... you want to talk about the circumstances around that? Or, because we talked about it before in the podcast. Uh. The, like, horror movie oh, trade-off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah. The... yeah, yeah. So I have, um, I have a friend, uh, who has recently started getting into horror movies. And he's super into anime. And I'm a, I'm an enormous, um, horror movie fan. So. No. Before, you know, lockdown, second or third lock, whichever lockdown we're in now, before this lockdown, we were doing a trade-off where, um, you know, one night we'd get together and we would watch, um, a couple of horror movies. And then, you know, a week or two weeks later, I would get together with him and his roommate and the three of us would sit down and we'd watch some anime. Obviously, because of lockdown, we haven't been able to get together. And I've been feeling very, like, just, like, disassociated from my friend groups because I'm the only one that lives yeah. in my city. The rest of them live in my hometown. Um, I don't have a car. It's lockdown. And most of them aren't super into, like, virtual hangouts. Um, you know, like, what Joseph and I do. So I was, you know, kind of down in the dumps and complaining to Joseph about it. And then this friend messaged me randomly and was saying how he wished we had gotten together to do you know, movie night before lockdown hit. And I, you know, jumped at the chance. I was like, hey, we could do this virtually. I do this with another friend of mine. So we ended up getting on last night and on Skype and did uh, a virtual movie night. Um, and we watched Ginger Snaps, which is one of my childhood favorite horror films, mm-hmm. which I saw for the first time on Space Channel. During oh a God. Friday night nightmare. Oh, yes. I'm bringing... If you've been with us since episode one, we're coming back to the fucking Space Channel where I saw all of my horror movies as a child. <laughs> all, these, uh, all these Americans and Europeans are just like, what the fuck is this? It's, it's, like, it's you know just, what? You know, it's the sci-fi channel. I'm sure yeah. you have an equivalent. If you're in America, it's it's basically the same as the sci-fi channel. Sci-fi channel had Thursday Night Thrill Fest. Um, Space Network or Space Channel had uh, Friday Night Frightmare. So, which is a better night. Thursdays are stupid. Anyway, so Friday Night Frightmare was the first time I saw Ginger Snaps, probably at like midnight or something. Um, And I was definitely like, this came out in 2001. So I was definitely like, I had to have been like 11 or 12. Because I remember that the sequel to Ginger Snaps came out when I was in eighth grade. And I remember because my classroom was in a portable and there was a newspaper and my best friend in eighth grade and I were sitting there reading the newspaper and Ginger Snaps was like in the newspaper as playing at the movies because, you know, if you're a Gen Z, maybe you don't know this, but in the early 2000s, we found out what movies were on at the cinema by looking in the fucking newspaper. God, yeah, I barely Just remember that. Throwing crazy. it back. But I have this like distinct memory of that. So th- I know that the sequel came out when I was in eighth grade. So it's probably around then that I saw the original on Space Channel. Ginger Snaps is a Canadian independent horror film. It is by the same guy who created the television show Orphan Black. 
uh, which is super popular. I feel like a ton of people have seen Orphan Black. Ginger Snaps, along with Orphan Black, actually, was filmed in the GTA, Greater Toronto Area, um, in Scarborough specifically. And it's about these two sisters who are, like, sort of gothic, very consumed with ideas of, you know, death and and destruction and that sort of thing. Um, and they're right. very, inc- like, just so incredibly codependent because they're, they've sort of hyper-isolated themselves from the rest of the world. They're, like, a very insular pair, and they don't relate to, like, anyone else. So Ginger is 16, and Bridget is 15, skipped a grade. Ginger is played by Catherine Isabel, who you would recognize as one of the psychics in uh, the, like, season five-ish era of Supernatural. And... Uh, Bridget is played by Emily Perkins, who is also in Supernatural, as the character Becky, who ends up dating Chuck and is in love with Sam. Anyway. Okay. So Fun connections. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So they're 16 and 15. The 15-year-old skipped a grade, so they're they're in the same year in school. Um, And they're both very late bloomers. Like, they haven't um, gotten their periods yet. They're only semi-going through puberty. They're very awkward, super, like, disenchanted with the world. And... They are getting bullied by a hyper-popular, very pretty girl. So they decide to go out one night and steal her dog and make it look like the dog has been eaten by this wild animal that's kind of roaming the towns, eating, like, people's pets and and other wild animals. So the town is on hyper-alert. Nobody really knows what it is, but they assume it's, like, a coyote or something. So they go to steal this dog. And while they're on their way, they walk through a park where they find another dead dog. It's still warm, and they try and pick it up so they can use the body of this dead dog to, like, make it look more realistic. It's really bringing the movie back to me, actually. Yeah. Um, And in that moment, Ginger gets her period for the first time, and then immediately gets attacked by this, what they're calling the Beast of Bailey Downs, which is the town that they live in. Bridget saves her, brings her home. She's been pretty horribly mauled. Like, she's got huge scratches, bite marks on her body. And as soon as they get home, the bleeding almost immediately stops. And it looks like the wounds are starting to heal. And from that moment on, Ginger starts changing in ways that Bridget can't understand. And she starts going out and looking for answers and makes a connection with a boy who also saw the animal that attacked Ginger the same night. Mm-hmm. And they start trying to come up with a solution or cure for whatever's happening to Ginger. But basically, it's a creature feature. If you've never seen it, it is a werewolf movie. That's not a spoiler or really anything. It, you can tell pretty clearly from the cover of the DVD. But it's this amazing allegory for like the female experience of puberty. And just the experience of like coming of age in general so they use werewolfism or lycanthropy as this vehicle for a coming of age moment as well as explaining this like disenfranchisement between these two sisters who were once like painfully like attached at the hip close as they begin distancing from each other because of their like coming of age experiences that they're going through. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 I don't know. The relationships between these characters is really beautiful. The mother has like 
this amazing sort of arc that goes on in the background where she she doesn't understand her children at all, but you can tell that she would like literally die for them by the end. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on between all of these different characters in relation to, um, you know, body dysmorphia, sexuality, puberty, and Mm -hmm. all of these like really intense experiences that occur in that microcosm of high school. Do you think, so one thing we talked about off, off air about this thing, right? So I don't know if you want to recount that conversation, but I was actually thinking of a different thing. The thing we talked about before was how, and I sort of disagreed with your earth. I thought of it differently, right? Is that I thought of zombies as being the rep- the monster representative often of the lower class, but you were sort of talking about how, well, often it's werewolves that take yeah. on that role. And the, and the kind of beast within is a kind of nasty take on the, some of the fears that we might have of the quote unquote lower classes. And so, you know, that's something uh, we can explore. But the one thing I wanted to say, but what you were saying there actually is about body horror and the, the like, the role in horror of, um, I, I noticed this, that a lot of people talk about this, that often people can identify with horrifying, like body horror characters, not necessarily in a good way, but they actually feel because of their own disconnection with their bodies, they feel a, a sense of like connection with the, with a character who's undergoing mm-hmm. body horror. And it's fun because it's not something I necessarily feel, but I don't think it's necessary because I feel like I fit my body, but rather that I just don't feel embodied or like that I need to have the right body going on. So it's an interesting experience that a lot of people seem to talk about with these things when I've watched YouTube video essays on this subject. And I wonder what your experience with that is. So I think werewolfism as a whole, I don't know if if I feel works great as like this like hand in hand allegory for like body dysmorphia in a general sense. But in Ginger Snaps in particular, I think it works really well because it's not one of those like full moon changes becomes werewolf in and then in the daytime they're human again. In Ginger Mm -hmm. Snaps, the way the transformation works is it's this like slow drawn out process over the course of weeks. So she gets bitten on one full moon and it takes a full month for her to complete the entire transformation and become the wolf. And that's who she is forever now. She's forever this like man-eating, destructive, angry beast. And and really to me is this is the experience of like teenagedom but specifically from like that feminine kind of tilt because you're looking hmm. at it from I you know, I'm a girl, I am a child, I am like almost asexual to I have these increasing feelings of like hormonal activity of sexuality, of repression, I get my period, I start developing secondary sexual characteristics. And by the end of this whole puberty transformation, I'm a completely different person than I was, you know, six months prior, a year prior, four years prior, however long, this sort of like, animalistic representation of um, hyper-feminine sexuality. Mm -hmm. So I think in that regard, because they chose to do it as this staged, slow transformation where she becomes more and more aggressive and sexual, I I think it works really well as this conversation around, you know, female body dysmorphia, puberty, coming of age, all of these kinds of topics. Right. No, that makes sense. I want to just... From us to the the quick fire two movies that I watched, and I I don't have much to say. I just think they're kind of 
they're interesting. So one is, I believe, a more indie movie. I've never heard anyone talk about it, uh, called You and I. And it's a, it's a gay sort of film, very low budget, um, about two guys hitchhiking, not hitchhiking, sorry, uh, just going on a road trip across, I think it's, I think it's, yeah, it must have been Germany because there was, it was like Nazi outposts and stuff like this they end up going to. But yeah, so they're, they're German guys who speak German sometimes, but most, most movies they're speaking English. But it's, it's sort of mixed. So I think it was filmed in Europe or something. Really should have done my research more on this. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, Rapid but, fire people. Yeah. But um, yeah, so they're, they're going on this journey. And then the, I liked the gay story and things like this, but it, it's very classic indie movie in that we've got a storyline where they're basically, one of the guys is admittedly gay and the other guy, you're not totally sure is gay or not or what their relationship is and they meet a hitchhiker who comes with them who says i can show you the way to this cool spot they go to this cool spot or it's a shortcut rather they go to this cool shortcut they go to the guys one of their guys um father or uncle's vacation home and that's where they end up staying and they're sort of staying together and basically sexual frustration sexual tensions happen between them all and i think the uh, I, I, I actually, I don't want to spoil this, but it's like, basically, if you're interested in it, it's like, there is a toxic sort of relationship that happens. And the, I'm, I'm really struggling to think of what to say without spoiling. Cause I'm like, it is that one cool thing in the movie is the, tw- it's not even a twist, but like a, a kind of unraveling of the three-way dynamic between them all. Like the resolution is very nasty. I'm just mm-hmm. like. And I'm like, it's a kind of different take, right? You're, it's kind of realistic, I think, in some relationships where the the way that they go ends up being, like, the reason you end up in a good spot is because of some assholeish things you do to get there. And I'm, but I, as a feeling of resolution, I was like, oh God, like, these are the characters I was watching the whole time. Like, that's your personality. <laughs> like, okay, but it's it's interesting. Uh, the other one I watched was a more popular one called The Goldfinch with... Ansel Elgort? Yes, Ansel Elgort. Ah, uh, why do you suck at loved... names so much? I know. I haven't even seen that movie. I've I was going to say Elgort something. I know, I was going to say Elgort something terrible. Only seen he... the poster, never even seen a trailer, still got the name before you. So he... <laughs> uh, he was in... Fallen or Starts, which I actually really loved as a movie. And I know that there's problems with, with it and people have issues, but I, I really enjoyed it and cried. This one is a book based on a book by Donna Tartt. And it's about a painting in a museum that gets uh, destroyed in a bombing that this character was involved when he was in, uh, in when he was very young, Ansel Elgort's character. And actually, I should mention that this is one of the, I think, kind of annoying things about the movie is that you only see older Ansel Elgort for about a third of the movie. Two thirds of it is him younger. So a different actor, like a no-name actor. So, and I'm like, that's a bit of a weird thing to have him front and center in the posters and whatnot. And he's really only about a third of the character. Other than, okay, look, this is not super related to what you're talking about. But other than those two movies, Fault in Our Stars and Goldfinch, which I haven't, se- I haven't seen either of them. Yeah. I cannot think, I-, I have no fucking idea what Ansel Elgort has been in. I can uh, baby driver. see his face. Oh, fucking Baby Driver. I knew I'd seen him in something. Thank you. That movie sucked. Oh, uh, it's, I think it has bad messaging, but I think it was a kind of interesting movie. 
The music was cool. Like, I, I, the aesthetics are kind of neat, but the characters are, mm-hmm. like, caricature-like. Yeah. And, and the plot is nothing. Like, it goes nowhere. And I'm just, yeah. this is boring and, and weird and, and has, you know, nothing for me to sink my teeth into. I've been known to music. call it the, the, the bad popular drive, yeah. which well, I, I mean, drive, I do think is a good movie. That's literally what it is. That's <laughs> uh, that's thing. 150% all that movie is. In the movie, when he was a kid, there's a bombing. His mother dies in the bombing. And you see him in a flashback, her walking away from him as he stays to stare at this painting of the goldfinch you find out he stole it. After the bomb hit, he stole the painting, which was assumed to be destroyed. What? So like a fucking, like, grade schooler stole a... Yeah. Okay, sure. Like, and so and so this is like a famous painting, right? It's a, I don't know if it's a real painting or not. I don't believe it's a real painting. But in the, you know, it's a, it's supposed to be equivalent to like a, a Van Dyke or like one of those Dutch great still lifes. Van Dyke? I don't even know who that is. Uh, or other Van Dyke, other than I, Dick no. Van Dyke. Yes, not Victor. Do you yeah, mean Van argument, Gogh? No, Van Dyke. But it's 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 sort of an earlier era than Van Gogh because they don't look like this. They look like these very realistic scenes. I'm trying. Uh, the girl with the pearl earring is a, oh, is a yeah, yeah, yeah. that okay. era okay. of painting. Right. I know what you're talking about, but all I could think was Dick Van Dyke. So he steals show. this this small painting of the goldfinch, which is a bird who has a golden chain trapped in things. Do so you think there's going to be some kind of metaphor and there is with being stuck on a golden chain to then being stuck there your whole life and basically you see his childhood as he grows up and this event shaping his whole thing going from house to house in a foster care system and just not being able to feel at home and becoming kind of lying hiding his true self type person not necessarily a psychopath but Sorry, not to be an asshole who keeps interrupting you in your supposed rapid fire, but... Yes, yes, yes. He's going foster home to foster home with a with a stolen, presumably yes. hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of art? Probably millions, yes. Uh, h- how? In what he just world? Wraps, he just wraps up a newspaper and he just keeps it in his bags or, like, keeps it hidden all the time. Yeah, because he's never been... he Not a single foster parent or foster child that he's been in group homes with went through his shit and stole things like never it's no. um so sorry it's it's not necessarily foster i i shouldn't have said it that way he he there's this woman i forget it's somehow related to his family or something like that but she takes him in first then he runs away and then he uh, goes someone else he ends up with uh this antique stealer okay. or he well actually he's with his father for a bit then he ends up with this antique stealer. He's met this antique stealer. And the antique stealer is actually the center point of the movie because he says, what matters to me is, he's, he's like, the the life of objects is what he teaches the the young character. Where he says, like, I love the fact that an object, right, I, he can tell an authentic antique because of the life of it that it's lived as an object. And he can feel that in its asymmetrical way it wears down in the grain there's certain things and he teaches him about these things right and the center point of the movie is he ends up becoming a a, a conning salesman of the uh, in the antiques he works in the antique store and he's selling antiques for not what they are right they build some antiques where they take authentic pieces and mix them with non-authentic pieces to make a nice piece but they always sell them and explain as such or do they? 
is the question here, right? And he's been selling them. He's made them a ton of money by passing them off as true authentics. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't have that. He never really learned that same kind of respect and all stuff. And uh, I, I'm just going to say it now because I do want to talk about this part, but this will be spoilers for sure. And this is the most interesting part of the movie. So don't listen to this if you want the movie because this is the cool uh, part. And I'm just ruining it for you in case you... <laughs> but he has this friend from childhood who he loves. And when he was with his father, he runs away at some point. And the kid, the, his friend is like, I need a day to fall before I'll follow you. Right. I, I absolutely need this day. I can't do it right now. Can't run away with you right now. He's like, I'm going right now. I have to run away right now. So he runs away and the kid never follows him. He never, they never meet again until much later in his life. He finds out that the reason the kid, the kid didn't is because he had stolen the painting. He had found out about it and he had stolen the painting from him and he never knew because it was rewrapped in newspaper and Ansel Elgort's character has been keeping that painting wrapped up this whole time. But it was fake and the last bit of the movie is their journey to get this painting back because it was used actually to make his friend rich by using it as collateral in drug deals. Mm. But in one of them, the drug deal went bad and the other side kept it. So he's like, together, we have to get it back. And it's actually so beautifully done, such a beautiful sense of friendship. And and it ties so nicely with the antique dealer's storyline who uh, explained, like, also talks to him about it. And he's like, did you actually steal this painting? And he says, yes. And the guy's so disappointed in him because he's like, that painting represents, you know, something that has survived down hundreds of years and has lived a life and has inspired so many people and you took that away for your own selfish reasons. I I like that I'm left with a sense in this movie that I don't know fully what the message is, but my feelings during these different interactions of the movie were powerful, which I think is one of the great things art can do is when you really, you don't necessarily have an answer, like what's the message and you just could write it down. It's not something that can just be said, it's an experience and you feel this life of objects and this message that's trying to say and i and i i've liked other of donna tart's books or her first book at least the secret history so i am interested maybe one day in finishing book because the movie did feel compacted like a like a shorter version of what the fully fleshed out story would be mm-hmm. also beautiful cover to that book just iconic looking that's my quote unquote rapid fire yeah didn't... let's say slightly faster round okay <laughs> okay you know, we can just lie. That's fine. Um, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's other stuff that I had been meaning to watch and just haven't yet. So I'm just going to throw it out there for anyone who's interested and doesn't know. Second season of Discovery of Witches is out now. It's on Sundance oh, now nice. or uh, Shudder. And second season of uh, M. Night Shyamalan's The Servant is out now. It is on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, the first season of both were excellent in very different ways. Uh, so if you are interested in getting into them, there's a lot more content for you to binge now. So it's probably a good time. Oh, wow. I actually am. that. that both those do intrigue me. That's very cool. I can um, give you my Shutter n- login if you want to watch Discovery. As usual, we never even slightly mentioned the movie oh, yeah! we're going to talk about this oh, episode. Oh, shit. Oh, man, we meant to mention that at the top. We mean to do this every time, and we never do. It's because you made me jump into, like, talking about 
the fucking movies and shit that we watch. Okay, you also always give me, you're like, why do we have to talk about the movie? They can see it in the thumbnail and blah, blah, blah. So I know, but you're the one who's like, I want to tell them at the beginning. I do. Yeah, so okay, it, so it, then, like, it, don't rush me into talking about, like, fucking movie corner if you're not going to do the thing that you want to do. So, Bridgerton. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were saving that until you finished it. No. Yeah. Because I don't want to accidentally tell you who Pride and Prejudice Gossip Girl is. <gasps> yes, please don't. Oh, my God, yeah, no, no I do need to finish it. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm glad to know that they do tell it in the first season because it they is do, a yeah. curiosity. Um, we watched The Bast of Night on Amazon yes. Prime. And I believe it was an Amazon Prime original. Yeah, it was. It was. It is. Hold on. Let me. I should have pulled this up immediately to give like. Since you know I have no information. You have no information. On Nobody's in it. <laughs> really. Yeah. It's it. There's literally no cast. Um, well, there is it was a cast. Directed but by it's, aliens. But it's, it's no. What I mean is it's nobody famous. But essentially the vast of night occurs one night in New Mexico in the late 50s. A switchboard operator and a radio DJ discover a strange audio frequency, um, which could change the future forever. But essentially, it's occurring like cold, early Cold War-ish era, but post Sputnik. Um, mm-hmm. And it has a very similar aesthetic feel, at least in the beginning, to uh, that Jake Gyllenhaal movie, October Sky, that came out in like 2003. Um yep got very similar vibe almost through the whole thing really it's written and directed by andrew patterson who's literally done nothing else except for the vast of night this is such a weird movie he's he's done nothing else except for the vast of night and almost every actor in it has been in nothing else except for like maybe short films or a couple like really deep cut indies uh so this is very off the beaten path I think this that sort of speaks to my general feeling towards it, which I'm not going to say it's like a brilliant movie, right? You can definitely feel the budget constraints in a certain way. It's filmed to be very like tight. But I think it, once you understand its aesthetic or what it's trying to do, it hits it the whole, the whole way yeah. through. Like totally. it knows what it wants to do and just follows through with it. Um, and I, and I really like that. So I have a bunch of different things. I want to say, I guess the one thing is that, so they use this film graining technique, right, to make it look, and I think the aspect ratio too is sort of off, to make it look like it's filmed from that era or, you know, maybe a little bit after. So, and I think that really adds to this. So even though it's the exact same costuming as something like Queen's Gambit, you know, a brand new show, it's so, it, it feels more enriched by this this camera style and whatnot, such that you feel like you're in a normal town of that era it's not heightened it's not brought into a different space it feels not and not necessarily found footage either the camera is very real like a like a normal yeah it's TV it's, camera. it's a steady cam like it's not a handy cam it's not it's not found footage by any means it, it very much is a a cinematic experience it just feels like it's filmed you know in like 70 millimeter right it's yeah. got that graininess it, it's got that um very like bubble TV feeling. It's got a slight sort of sepia tone over the whole thing. And nighttime has a slight sort of like bluish hue over it, like an old tube TV would. And the sound quality, um, like obviously it's more pronounced when they're on the switchboard or on the radio, 
but the sound quality in it feels very much like you're listening to something through an old radio. Right. And that's all very important to the what they're trying to do, which is a vast majority of the movie takes place in a very auditory space. We're listening to the radio signals. We're listening to conversations on the phone. And the characters, a radio DJ and a switchboard operator, they're really doing those very things most of the movie. Yeah. Switching between callers, talking on the radio, playing music. And that's the space you're in almost the whole movie. Really what it feels like to me is... Um sort of an homage to the old radio plays a la like yes. hg wells war of the worlds that's that is i have what it the written whole, in my notes <laughs> that's what the whole yeah. experience feels like right because it's all th- not all but it's mostly through the switchboard mostly through the radio and it's a lot of sounds and individual personal experiences being reported upon And not a lot of, like, action, you know? This isn't going to be, like, an Independence Day or a Tom Cruise War of the Worlds where there's a lot of aggressive action. It's, you know, it's it's a lot more of, like, experiential and and sort of, like, abstract aesthetic feel to what's going on. So you feel vaguely disconnected in a way where, like, this is being told to you as something that is occurring, but it's not, you can't watch it on TV happen. You know what I mean? You can't physically mm-hmm. experience it. It's a lot of word of mouth. But it so effectively creates this kind of paranoia and tension where you start out like, I'm excited. Something new and adventurous is happening. And by the middle, you're like, this is starting to feel bad. This is starting to feel eerie and and tense, but there's still a lot of excitement in the air where nobody's really afraid yet, but nobody's really comfortable either. And by the end, everybody is disquieted by what's happening. Everybody's slowly kind of unraveling. Nothing's exciting anymore. This isn't an adventure. This is a nightmare. Yeah. There's a lot of I want to get to this more towards the end, but there's a lot of metaphorical things that I'm interested to explore with you of what you think the movie is trying to say in the end. But one thing I want to talk about as a feeling, an overall aesthetic feeling in the movie is I actually, I've wanted to name this type of experience and it, I've it had the experience specifically with a couple other movies, um, which is what I call kind of going into the night movies. And in particular, there's an Italian movie I watched in a movie club a bunch a long time ago called, pardon my Italian accent, but La Notte, which means the night. And it's about a, woman and man who are, I believe, married. And it's there first in the, it starts in the day and it's about them getting ready to go to a party, them, them going to the party. And it's that exact experience. And I know you've had it, right? Where you go to a house party one, and this is a very rambunctious, different, you know, almost the feeling it might use it like a great Gatsby party or something like a big house with people on the lawn, people sprawled out playing like lawn bowling and uh, darts and, and bowl, uh, pool and whatnot, different things and people swimming. And it's just, it's everywhere. The Pauline, it's a sprawl, right? And this slowly you're going deeper into the night. And as you go deeper in the night, the characters start drifting apart a bit more and they talk to other people about their marital problems, about their feelings and other things and who they actually might be in love with instead of their partner or what they feel right? And there's this sense in which the night disintegrates all or opens you up, right? And that feeling of going to a real life house party, right? And that late night, most people have left in the party. Some people have gone to, you know, have sex with people. Some people are, you know, passed out or whatever. But there's always a few people who kind of stay up and have those super late night conversations where they're like, 
what are we doing here, right? And you're, you're waiting for like the sun to rise again. And that feeling I think is captured by a few movies, this being the best example. Even I think this is less so, but I think Breakfast at Tiffany's has some of that quality throughout the parties. Well, not, not necessarily as much nighttime, but that partyish lifestyle and, and her things. Often these movies star a woman. And there's another French movie I've seen called Cleo 9 to 5, which is a, her life throughout a day. Um, and that only goes till 5 p.m. But again, there's this sense in which her it's the weirdness of her life and her self-analysis of it by the end. I would say um, the 1990s or early 2000s movie Go is kind of like a modern version of what you're talking about. Modern-ish for the time. I don't know that movie. Oh, it's excellent. Um, it has Timothy Oliphant, Katie Holmes, and um, fuck, Canadian actress. Oh, it's killing me that I can't remember it because it's a Canadian actress. Uh, hold on. Let me look it up because it's just Sarah Polly. Sarah Polly. <laughs> um, anyway, so Go is, uh, it's basically, it's about a rave. Essentially, it's about rave kids, um, right. like club kids. And uh, it's it starts with, you know, Sarah Polly. Project Polly's. X is another movie. Yeah, but this is different. This doesn't feel like Project X. You know, it doesn't feel like a super bad. It's not the same kind of comedy. I would liken it closer, which has a very similar feel to what you're talking about, Rules of Attraction. Um, it's very mm. much that same era. If you've seen Rules of Attraction with James yes, Vanderbeek, Jessica Biel, Ian Somerhalder, excellent movie. It is a unofficial sort of tenuously connected in the same universe as American Psycho. Fun fact. Rules mm-hmm. of Attraction, American Psycho, same universe. James Vanderbeek is related to Christian Bale's character. That's how they connect. Anyway, it has a similar vibe to that. Go basically starts with Sarah Polly's character talking about going to this rave. They want to get drugs for the rave. The drug deal goes bad. And you're following these different characters on various journeys throughout a, a night of partying, essentially, throughout this one rave. Exactly, yeah. Um, so you have your drug dealer chasing them down. You have Sarah Polly's character just trying to have, like, a night out away from work. You have Katie Holmes's character, the young, naive, sort of, like, uh, girl-next-door type character. You've got, I think... Like a like a Rob Lowe esque type character in there, played by I want to say Meyer Brecken Brecken Myers or something. I can't. He was super popular in the nineties. Mm. Um, but it's it's very much like several characters going through this party journey together, intersecting at different moments and having these weird kind of conversations about what the fuck is my life right now. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Excellent like, movie. And that f- feeling, there is something about. The going into the nighttime, taking drugs, like all these parts of the experience is that, you know, this is to bring the bit of the philosophy mind, but there was a famous thing by uh, Nietzsche, if people know this philosopher, but he made this distinction between Apollo. Uh, I, I know, just, I know if, if you're people really know this philosopher, Nietzsche, really? Yeah. It's, I, I mean, is he famous? Yes. I don't know, I feel it. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I, but I'm, you know, I don't want to, if you don't know him, that's okay too. Yeah, I mean, I guess, but I, you but, know. So the Greek god Apollo, and Apollo stands for the kind of structured way our society is, the way it's in, in light and brightness, right? But he said there's another side, and this was important to Greek culture, and this is a thing he says that we need to reconnect with, is the Dionysian, the god of drink, of partying, of Bacchanalia. Exactly, and that's that's the Roman name yeah. for Dionysus, right? And that, and know. you know, great play better. too, which is, yeah. And that's a great play, too, because that the play, the Bacchae, is about women going into the forest and, like, 
go in this revel, in this grand thing, which can be dangerous because you can, that wildness can lead to destruction and chaos, but it's also so human. It's, 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 it's the possibility of rejuvenation, the possibility of opening up the closures from the light, like the structures of things covering up everything, making everything too routine. And these into the night feelings, and this movie has this, it, it doesn't get this one. Okay. To be sure, the vast of night does not go deep into character psyche in a drug-like ecstasy or anything Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I I definitely understand what you're saying. And and I do think it is a really, like, interesting philosophy. And I think it pairs well with a lot of movies. I just don't get that feeling from The Vast of Night. Like, I I don't... There is a difference in the type of night, yeah, that's going on here. Yeah. Um, There is something, though, about the way they... Well, this is to the metaphor, the points I was going to save for later and i guess this is later so is about what do you think about so they both talk about how they dream to leave the town in different ways she she wants to get get a job at a larger switchboard and he wants to go to a larger city to become a bigger well no radio she wants host. she wants to go to college that too yes yeah, she wants to leave to go to college. She's 16. He wants to be famous essentially and get mm-hmm. a, you know a a bigger radio host job. And so in a way, I didn't really think about this till after the movie, but in a way they go on this journey trying to track down this signal, the signal that they hear on the radio, and they find out from a caller and some other, uh, another person they meet that it might there's a there's a government conspiracy perhaps. There is a thing that's covering up that these signals have been spotted in different spots and essentially they think it might be coming from from the outside from outer space or from somewhere like this and you know of course this connects to all ufo conspiracies all these types of things but it it also is interesting how there is this message of when everyone was in the gym when everyone the town was together doing their thing the town's thing which is watching the game there are some outsiders who are left on the periphery and they have dreams to leave this town dreams to do something else and they're the ones taken or, or that are that are expected to be taken by the ship. And I think, you know, I don't think the metaphor is necessarily direct, but there is something about this outside and the desire towards the night or what this means. And, I'm, you know, the title, it's the vast of night. And I think of like the vastest of ocean too. But this possibility of escape, but into the unknown too. Mm-hmm. And this, this difficulty between them. And of course, there is an ending. There is a thing that actually happens but i do think the metaphor and things like this are wrapped up in something here that that fascinates me yeah i mean there's 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 definitely like a conversation happening about the complacency of like a small town community and then those like people who dream of something more and and you know neither of those things being bad but there is sort of i mean normally in these types of movies when you have somebody who's like got big dreams and wants to like you know achieve more or leave the small town or whatever that's that's sort of seen in like a positive way where like not so much not necessarily that they're escaping the like dullness of small town life but that they you know want to achieve excellence and that's sort of shown positively but in this movie i'm mm-hmm. i'm not even saying it's shown as a negative but you have these two characters one who is extremely naive and dreams of adventure and one who is kind of an asshole 
Yep. And like definitely incredibly self-important, who doesn't just dream of something bigger, but feels he deserves something bigger and is willing to do anything to make it happen. Right? So you mm-hmm. have these two different versions of characters who want to get out of small town life. And then you have your kind of complacent um, small town people who are just excited to do the standard community activities, one of which being going to the high school basketball game which is like a major event in this small New Mexico town. So I think there's something interesting there. And I think at the end, what ultimately ends up happening to these two characters, this sort of like great escape kind of moment is shown less as adventure and more as this terrifying step into the unknown. Yes. Um, So it doesn't seem like, you know, their climactic moment is, is something that's necessarily good for them. It's just Mm -hmm. complete, kind of abyss it's total unknown you have no idea if there's any kind of positive that's going to come out of it and the small town living continues going on to the next day you know like you know that these people will continue existing and continue being happy so you can't really say if they made the right decision um and i think that's really interesting and of course you know because it's set in the 50s and it's in new mexico you have this you know, very standard kind of conversation around um, Cold War panic. Because uh, at that time, you know, you're post-World yes. War Two, and you have this huge economic boom. So these small towns that were kind of dying are being revived and are, and are starting to rebuild and rebuild their communities. But you also have, you know, the space race and panic over Sputnik and panic over Russia and kind of the invader feeling from the Russian government and and everyone's fear that they're spying on them and there's conspiracies about it and maybe there are aliens and they're the ones who who are spying and you know we're not in this cold war race because of Russia we're doing it because of aliens so there's there's all these things that were historically happening all of these intense feelings in these small communities that were occurring in this exact moment coupling with with this the experience of these two characters Absolutely. And I want to get to a moment in the movie that I liked its framing of near the end. Um, but I want to talk a bit about their relationship too, that I think is nicely painted throughout the movie with maybe perhaps too subtle in a way, um, in that it's not necessarily romantic, their relationship. And it's, and the way they're friends is strange too. I, I like that it feels not necessarily like unique relationship. You've you've seen this type of connection between people before. It's kind of as though he's a kind of mentor and she's kind of naively following or like enchanted by him in a certain way, but also realizes he's an asshole and, and she's trying to show him. He's like, she's like, mm-hmm. you're kind of not like, you need to not put on airs with a radio voice. You need to not tell me off all the time. And all these, you know, she's naive about it in a certain way, but she's also emotionally, intuitively correct in her motions, yeah. her, her pushbacks. And I think it's a, it's a subtly true to life relationship that I actually found really, I liked that, the way it played out throughout the thing because it felt real. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah. Um, it wasn't unromantic either. Like there are hints at it, other right. characters that you come in contact with, you know, make jokes to her about how like, you know, he's a good match or whatever. 
Um, but there's also something that's like mentor mentee or brother sisterly about them. It's 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 a very like realistic kind of relationship between you know a 16 year old girl and you know the slightly older boy who I presume is supposed to be like 18, 19, mm-hmm. just based on like what they do. But I. I mean, I don't know. There's there's a there's a naivete to her and there's definitely an egotism to him, but they check each other constantly. You know, mm-hmm. when she's too unsure of herself, he calls her out. When he's too much of an asshole, she calls him out. So there's yeah. some kind of like a repartee going on here. I just I I mean, I like the subtlety to it. I like that they didn't delve too deeply into sort of a romantic thing, but I just wish that they had put a little bit more into this friendship because ultimately it kind of felt like nothing when you get to that end and they're, you know, holding mm-hmm. each other. It's like, well, this feels unearned, you know? Like, I, I know that this is an accurate kind of thing that would happen in that moment, you know? Of course, if something that intense was going on, that's what somebody's going to do. But I just don't understand the dynamics of their relationship beyond the fact that they live in a small town and so are forced, essentially, based on proximity, to have some kind of a relationship to one another, you know? The scene I wanted to get to though that I actually really liked I just I feel like it's a it's an interesting looking or feeling scene was actually just before the the final end but they are in a forest and they see that on the ground there's some burnt sort of dirt and on a tree there's burnt dirt and they look and they see that there's a hole cut in the trees and the way the camera pans to show them is that you're seeing into the trees and it looks almost like the classic image of like the enchanted forest where there's this forest sort of enclosed. And and so the enchantment of adventure or the enchantment of home too is like there at the same time that you know that the reason that's there is for very dangerous reasons or that, that something very dangerous is going on. And they're looking up not at a bright sky or a rainbow river, but at the night sky, at the adventure of the of outer space of of the night sky that is so you know as you're saying with the cold war with the danger at the time and i think there is something like a new a different kind of call to adventure that is like they did go on an adventure to get here but it's that whole conspiratorial the mismatching of communication these things that a lot of uh, people talk about with postmodern writings of the 1950s and 60s often people talk about this is that there's a broken world after the world wars and there's a sense in which people are looking for ways to reconnect or recommunicate, but often they end up in cult-like or problematic bubbles of different sorts that are disconnected from each other. There's no longer a unifying view of the world. There are different people with different beliefs in their sort of bubbles. And I'm not saying all of this is totally within the movie. These are just me making connections to some of the feelings I had and that the movie doesn't necessarily feel like that's just one message or just one mm-hmm. thing. To me, it was more experiential. And and again, this is the thing I like in movies, that experiential feeling of well, opening up one's own mind. And I don't even necessarily think you're wrong. I'm not saying that, you know, they put this message in intentionally, but I don't necessarily think you're you're incorrect in, in your reading either, because when you look at the at the mediums that they're using to tell this story, radio and the switchboard, these are ways of connecting people to one another. However, in the 50s, 
you know, it's it's not like you would have a national radio station. This was the radio station yeah. for this one small community. And this was the switchboard for this one small community. And if you wanted right. to make a long distance call, you had to call your switchboard. Your switchboard would call the next town over switchboard, and then they would be able to connect you through multiple sources. But... It, there was no one number to call. There was no one radio station to listen to. So a lot of the news and the communication was incredibly insular at the time, solely out of necessity. So while you have these mediums that are used to connect people across vast distances at that time, those distances they were able to like, communicate across were so much smaller, right? Mm-hmm. So there's an idea of communication and connection and a lack of ability to do so, right? Like they even talk about one radio caller who phoned into the switchboard, but he was long distance. So when his call got disconnected, she wasn't even able to reconnect him because they didn't have his real name. So she couldn't even call the other switchboard from the city that he called from to try and get him back on the line. Mm Mm-hmm. To, to relate it to today too, and now the problem is more self-selection into bubbles and whatnot. But you know, during the pandemic and whatnot, we're, I think people are attracted, or at least you and I and many people I know, to the experience of a podcast or of a group, a YouTuber or something like that, that, that personal connection you can make with someone. And these communities probably felt something like that with their local radio stations, with their things like this. And I'm reminded of, um, you know, one of my favorite game series, the Fallout games, at least the recent ones, uh, where one of the cool things in that is you are running around a wasteland and there's local radio stations that have survived the apocalypse and are, they send you out and you can listen to them and they actually have a lot of dialogue and a lot of things and you can start to, as you play through the game, you're spending 50, 60 hours with this station and with the DJ on it. And there is this relationship you can make with uh, that type of experience. And so I think there's something... With our globalized world, there is a way in which, in a way, we try to reframe things to become more home-like, more connected, um, mm-hmm. smaller, to, to be able to feel that personal sense of connection. And that's a, another fear with global, with the global world, with everything being, you have to follow the news of the whole world and whatnot. That vastness of night problem is sort of in there too. That Both of the main characters want to go out into the wider world, and yet there's a danger in losing the sense of what made them special in their community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. I I definitely agree. And I think that's even brought up multiple times through the movie where, you know, you have that uh, older woman character, um, Mm -hmm. Mrs. Blanche that they go to visit. And, and even she, you know, she she mentions, you know, she's uh, a shut in, but she calls into the switchboard Every day during the day, so the Faye character who works the switchboard knows her, and she listens to Everett's radio show every single night. So she mm-hmm. has this, like, relationship with these two people without ever having met either of them physically in any real way. Yep. I, I think that there's some other strange things or tangents we could go on with the movie but like for one for example one that i'm not sure i thought would actually become a much more prominent part of the movie is the first caller that's talking about the signal uh they find out is a black man 
mm-hmm. and he talks about how the people who've been taken or have mysteriously disappeared and government or military exercises have been black and Mexican people. Mm, no, that's not what he says. They're not the people who have been taken. They're the people who the military used for those specific secret right. exercises. Um, and honestly, it's because in that time period, which is horrible, people of color were considered expendable in a lot of ways by the military. So they were often used for the more dangerous missions, like being like at the front lines um, and essentially used as shields mm-hmm. for like white soldiers and stuff. So like that, because he's talking about like secret military missions that would have occurred during like World War II era, it's very like, it's quite a bit more accurate to the time period. And it just like makes sense. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a terrible thing, but that is truly what would happen in that time period. So it's not so much about them being yeah. taken. It's about them being forcibly put into more dangerous situations because of experimental problems that the military was dealing with. And then these, you know, people of color started getting sick because of these, you know, secret military missions that they had to work on. Mm-hmm. I think two, or one of the things that he mentions, or that we we can take at least, is that he's also not trusted because he's black too, right? So it could be that because it's because it's secret, these people were on because they would be seen as untrustworthy if they wanted to give something away. Well, and also you know we're still deep in the time of like Jim Crow laws and segregation and stuff, so like their ability to communicate with larger communities was hindered simply because of the color of their skin and the nature of the laws at the time, especially in these small communities. Yeah. So I think, I think I had an overall really good experience with the movie. It's very specific in what it's trying to do. And I think this is sort of what one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is to find these types of movies, which are not necessarily for everyone for mainstream for the blockbuster popcorn experience. Therefore, almost what we're saying, like the, the late night watching and having experience with it type movies. Um, I mean, try and make it sound like a little less pretentious about it. Well, as we sit here I, and talk sure. about like Bacchanalia and stuff. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, to me, I don't necessarily, because, you know, as we've said many times about like that experience when we would, when we were young and we'd watch whatever comes up on Space Channel or whatever these things are. And that cool experience of finding things that you didn't necessarily, like you don't even know how to reference it to other people the next day. That's sort of part of the fun of it. Like they're so weird. They're so unfindable. They're so indie, quote unquote, or whatever. Um, And I think that's a really cool experience that's worthy to try to pursue and and find. But it's, you know, they're not necessarily uh, easy sells in the light of day. (laughs) Yeah. And not all of them are good. Like, let's just be honest. This one, I no, think, is a solid movie. Like, it's it's enjoyable if you're in the right mindset for it, if you're mm-hmm. looking for something that's kind of more experiential. It, it very much feels like a radio play. Like, realistically, you could not watch the movie at all and just listen to the audio and, and greatly enjoy it in the same way that that, um, you know, radio play podcast Homecoming was incredibly enjoyable. TV mm-hmm. show sucks, FYI. It's not good. But the podcast is amazing. Um, and it's just like, it feels more like, you know, voice acting and storytelling because of these sort of like aesthetics that they're using than it does a true cinematic experience um so if you're going into into it expecting something 
kind of really grand, you're you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be yes. really unhappy with it because this is, in a lot of ways, a very auditory experience. Yeah, another movie it reminded me of was Horse Girl, which we've talked about on the periphery of the podcast a few times. I mean, yes and no. I, like Because it deals with a lot of aesthetics, I get what you're saying. But I think Horse Girl is, in a lot of ways, a much more cinematic experience than Vast of Night is. Where, like, Vast of That's Night... True could have literally been a podcast and I would have enjoyed it just as much as I did as a film. Horse Girl needed a lot of the visual experiences to really progress the plot. Yeah, I, I didn't necessarily mean that connection, but I, I meant like she does, you know, it is about this connection with UFOs and her yeah. descent into madness. And uh, these, they're not, these characters are not necessarily descending into madness. It's more opening the conspiracy uh, in mm-hmm. this case. But uh, there is a that that feeling of the trend of a character going deeper and deeper into the mystery, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, seeing where they end up at the end is not necessarily uh, good. A really, if you are into radio plays, a couple really great radio plays um, that are podcasts to listen to. Homecoming is tremendous as a podcast, even if you've seen the Amazon Prime show, which is not good at all. Um, the podcast is tremendous with Catherine Keener, David Schwimmer, Oscar Isaac. Amazing. Um, Has a very similar kind of feel to this movie, actually. It's very much about Hmm. government conspiracy um, and, like, secret soldiers and um, illnesses, stuff like that. It's really interesting. Um, Limetown is also excellent. It's a fictionalized sort of investigative journalist podcast they did a TV show about that one, too. It was a Facebook Live TV show, weirdly enough, um, with Jessica Beale. Also not great. Podcast is tremendous. Um, again, secret scientific experiments about a commune called Limetown. Really, really interesting. Great mystery. And uh, The Black Tapes is probably the best one I have ever listened to. And it's sort of like a paranormal investigative journalist documentary style all fictional but it feels super real like it genuinely feels like this is not a fictional thing the way they did it is tremendous it feels like a real investigative podcast um the ending i i will say the final very final episode is kind of disappointing but the overall experience with that podcast is probably one of the best i've had for any kind of like radio play experience yeah those those sound all so cool and i think that type of experience is well suited to this conspiratorial yeah. feeling that in in this movie you really feel that immersion into what they're saying because the mystery is 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 being pulled out and how can you connect to these people how can you connect these messages so just like, great great experience i i love the idea of like the conspiracy theory movie like the conspiratorial movie where you're talking about government experiments and and aliens or any of that but i just find nine times out of ten they don't work effectively as movies unless you're doing the like government conspiracy like thin blue line shit or behind enemy lines like those kinds of things where it's it's very tangible and realistic it's just not Mm -hmm. effective but the radio play, like, podcast, super, super effective. If you're into, like, conspiracy storylines, it works so much better than any TV show or movie I've ever seen in the podcasting format with, like, really good voice actors. 
I don't know why, but in an audio format, you can allow your imagination to kind of build on top of what right. they're saying. They create this great tension. You're not hampered by budgets by any means because you don't like you don't have to show aliens. You don't have to show the experiments. It can be truly an audio experience where they're describing these things happening to you and you can visualize it. And it just works so effectively with the right voice actors. So I, I highly recommend if that's the the type of genre you're into, you will never find anything more effective. And I think this it's the same reason why, you know, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, it worked so well in that time period that it actually created a legitimate panic because it can mm-hmm. feel so non-fictional, even though you know it's a story. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So thanks for listening. And you can find us at FansLabPod on Twitter. Uh, that's the main way to get in contact with us. We each have an individual Twitter too, if you wanted to. You can find us through our names, uh, or find those through our names. And yeah, hope you had a good time. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank Bye. you. Bye.